Good morning once again, church. If you would, take your Bibles and open them to the minor prophecy of Joel, chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 1 through 11 this morning. Joel, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. And once you've found your place in Scripture, please stand to your feet as we read God's Word this morning. Joel chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. The Lord says this through the prophet Joel. Blow the ram's horn in Zion. Sound the alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the residents of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. In fact, it is near, a day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and total darkness, like the dawn spreading over the mountains. A great and strong people appears, such as has never existed in ages past and never will again in all the generations to come. A fire devours in front of them, and behind them a flame blazes. The land in front of them is like the Garden of Eden, but behind them it is like a desert wasteland. There is no escape from them. Their appearance is like that of horses, and they gallop like war horses. They bound on the tops of mountains. Their sound is like the sound of chariots, like the sound of fiery flames consuming stubble, like a mighty army deployed for war. Nations writhe in horror before them. All faces turn pale. They attack as warriors. They scale walls as men of war do. Each goes on his own path, and they do not change their course. They do not push each other. Each proceeds on his own path. They dodge the arrows, never stopping. They storm the city. They run the wall. They climb into houses. They enter through the windows like thieves. The earth quakes before them. The sky shakes. The sun and moon go dark, and the stars cease their shining. The Lord makes his voice heard in the presence of his army. His camp is very large. Those who carry out his command are powerful. Indeed, the day of the Lord is terrible and dreadful. Who can endure it? Let us pray. Lord, your word here concerning the day of the Lord is mighty and strong. And it lets us know of what Judah was to face, what they were facing, Lord. And it is a reminder that there is a day coming when Christ will descend upon this world, not just in salvation to save his church, but he will descend in judgment. And people apart from Christ, without the Savior, will not be able to endure that day. They will flee and find no refuge. They will scream and no one will come to their help. Lord, that day is coming. And so I pray that you would alert us and wake us all up to the majesty and to the terror of that day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated, brothers and sisters and visitors and friends. The sermon is titled, Humanity's Horror, the Terror of Judah. This is the day of the Lord, part two. Last year, I went on a short cruise to Catalina with my wife, and it was a great trip. During our time on the island, 
I decided to go disc golfing in the morning. And Jenny came along with me, and we took a nice little hike to a, well, I thought it was nice. There was some <laughs> tough stuff there. Nice little hike to a secluded mountainside where there was a disc golf course. It's on a mountainside. If you don't know what disc golf is, uh, I forgive you, all right? It's, it's like golf, but better, okay? Instead of clubs and golf balls and being, being very expensive, you just throw discs around into baskets, and it's a fairly cheap hobby and, and sport to participate. On hole number three of this disc golf course, I threw the disc, and it went out of bounds on the side of a mountain. I went over to see where my disc was, and I saw that it was down a slope about 35 to 40 feet. Nothing too hard to get back and up down, not that far, no big deal. So I shimmied down the mountainside, I grabbed my disc, I tossed it back up to the top of the mountainside, and as I threw it, I'm standing on a bunch of eucalyptus leaves, and they begin to slide, and I'm sliding with them, moving down the mountainside. I was unable to get solid footing as I tried to make my way back up the mountainside. I tried as best as I could, and I found myself sliding foot by foot more and more down the hill. And my heart began to race because the hillside dropped off. It was like a straight drop off after about another 100 feet. And so I knew if I started to slide and momentum gained, I knew I would not be able to stop. And just another 30 feet from where I was was a cactus patch, of all things. So I knew that if I slid to my death, I was going to blast through this wicked cactus patch on the way down. At the base of the mountain, there was a regular golf course. And a golfer had stopped in a cart to see what was going on with me. And he he could tell that I was in a bit of a pinch, okay? I don't know if you know what eucalyptus leaves are like, but they're sturdy, they're slippery, and this hillside was just covered with them. And so I had no way to gain any traction. And he shouted up at me, are you okay? And in my pride, I shouted, I think so. That's the best I could muster up. He could tell I was in trouble. But in my, in my heart, I kept thinking, this is how people die. I'm not exaggerating. I can't believe this is how I am going to die. That's literally what went through my mind. This is how I die. I did not see a way out of this. My wife was sitting on a bench in hole one, and she's enjoying a view of the Pacific Ocean. (laughs) Between two mountains, just looking down this valley, just beautiful, and I'm enjoying a different kind of view. Down a mountain and hard ground, and I am certain that this is not going to work out. Now, I know some of you are wondering, well, well, did you make it out? I'm just going to keep you in suspense a little longer, okay? I'll, I'll tell you what happened, okay? Now, briefly, I prayed, God, please get me out of this. That was all I said. And then I got really calm. I began to analyze the situation. I had nothing to grab onto. And as I was sliding further down the hill with each movement, I just decided not to move and get my center of gravity low and just spread out the weight, okay? Um, And uh, I moved some leaves around with my hand, and there was a tree root there, and I couldn't grab onto it because it was almost all the way buried except for the top part that was exposed. And so my heart's panicking, and I'm like, just don't move fast. Just calm down. And I start to scrape away dirt from the root and just pull the dirt away until there's enough dirt away that I can secure my hand onto that root. 
And then a little fear went away. I'm not out of it yet, but I just know if my feet slide, I at least have something to hold on to for the time being. And it'll procrastinate my death another 15 seconds because I, I don't think I can carry my own weight. But I'm holding on to it. And then I take one foot and I try to push leaves out of the way so that I can be standing on dirt and not leaves. And I got a foot secure. And then I did the thing, same thing with the other foot, pushing leaves away. I got three points of nice, solid contact. I'm not sliding anymore. Then I take my hand, I move leaves around. There's another root. Do the same thing. Okay, now I got four solid points. Now I'm going to bring a foot up, move leaves around, get on solid ground. I'm, I'm hanging on to three points at all time. If you know how to climb uh, telephone poles, which I don't, but I know that you're supposed to keep three points of contact at all time for safety. And I just use that strategy. Get all four points secure, then move one. Then get that point secure, then move another one. And always have three points of contact. And I finally shimmied my way up the mountain, exhausted. I had cramps in my legs the next day from trying to rescue my own life. At that point, I looked back down at the guy, and I said, thank you, and I waved him on, and he probably thought, what an idiot <laughs> for a disc. Right? I had no idea that that was going to happen. I found my wife, and I told her that I almost died. And she said, Josh Ritchie. That's what, she t- that's what she told me. Not, I'm so glad you're alive. <laughs> All right? I knew I was in trouble with her, too. <laughs> After just having a horrible moment of terror. I kid you not, I thought I was going to die. That, that was, a, it was a freaky uh, experience. In looking at the minor prophecy of Joel, we see a moment of terror, a moment of horror upon Judah. Is it is right? Is it's right around the corner for them. Death is upon them. I'm going to recap what we've been talking about in Joel chapter one, so that you can see what today's passage has to do with what we're talking about. What's going on in Joel? Joel is calling Judah to wake up, to wake up from their spiritual slumber. Devastation like no other has come upon their land in the form of a locust invasion. They should be weeping and wailing because they have no grain, they have no grapes, their food source has been depleted, and they need to consider the reason for this devastation upon their land because it wasn't just their food source that was affected. Yes, that was that. But they could not take that food and offer it to God in the worship rituals that God required of them, their thank offerings. They were to give grain offerings out of appreciation to God for what he has done for them and drink offerings or libations to God in his temple as they brought them before the priests. And if they were, if they were not torpid, if they were not spiritually slumbering, and rather if they were paying attention and alert, they would recognize that God had brought devastation upon the land as an act of judgment. It was God who stopped their offerings. It was God who stopped their food because they had broken covenant with God. So they could bring no thank offerings to God because God took away their blessing. He took away their joy. Why? What did they do that was wrong? We don't know. But we do know that according to the Mosaic Covenant, that whenever they were unfaithful to God, that he would cause this land of rich blessing to be a land of total devastation. That's what God would do. Just like when God cursed the land when Adam and Eve sinned and kicked them out of the garden, so too at times God would curse the promised land and kick them out, reminding them that you cannot be with God if you are in sinful relationship with him. And so we can be certain that Judah broke covenant or contract with God in some way. Again, that covenant being the Mosaic or the Sinaitic covenant, which God gave at Mount Sinai, if you remember. God gave it to them after God used Moses 
to free them, free the Israelites from slavery from Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And they're out in the wilderness, and that's where God gives this contract, this covenant. Okay, And so in light of all the devastation, every citizen from old to young, from prophet to priest to people, they were all to cry out to the Lord as they assembled at the temple of God. And they were to plead for mercy and grace. They were to come to God in repentance and cry out for restorative favor. That was Joel 1 through 4, uh, 1 through 14. Last week, we looked at verses 15 through 20, and we began to see that this whole book is really centered around the day of the Lord, a day of visitation from God and judgment, okay? And so uh, we looked at the central theme of the book. We began to see that Joel warns about a near danger that is coming, a certain danger, a devastating day from God. But right, what's interesting is right after he says this day is coming, he begins to refer to past events, things that have already happened. And so what is up with that? Why? The reason being that he talks about the day of the Lord that's coming and then automatically starts talking about the past is because they're actually already in the middle of this day and its events. All their food sources have been ravished by locusts. The storehouses and the granaries where they normally store food, they're empty and broken down. The animals are moaning and groaning in hunger. There is no pasture. Joel the prophet, he's crying out to God because a drought has also hit their land and perhaps a fire, causing everything to dry up from streams to trees to seeds in the ground. It, it, it looks like fire hit them. All right, even if it, the drought is uh, symbolically mentioned in fire. So Joel is basically saying this, watch out for that day. It's coming. Well, how do you know, Joel? Because we're in it. Look at what's happening to us and what has happened. Look at the devastation upon us. We're experiencing the beginning of it already. And so that's why he speaks of this near event in, with past events. Okay, It's already upon them. Now, When it comes to the day of the Lord, and we spent a lot of time talking about this last week, because it's the central theme of the book, we want to make sure that you understand this day better so that when we come to more passages about it, you have more knowledge to stand on, right? So that it doesn't require so much explanation. So let me just recap a little bit of that. When it comes to the day of the Lord, we saw that this term, it is more than a one-time, end-time event. It is often used to refer to the day when Jesus comes back and judges sinners. And that is the day of the Lord. But many of us, we know that that's the only perspective that we were taught about this day, this event. And so we saw, and we looked at a ton of scriptures last week, we saw that it referred to a time in past also when God judged Israel by the Assyrians, by the Babylonians, and even by the Romans. Those were days of the Lord. Okay, separate occasions where God judged Israel for their sin. In the case of the Romans, he used them to sack Jerusalem, to destroy the second temple because they rejected Jesus Christ, just as Jesus foretold. But we also saw that the day of the Lord wasn't just about punishment for Israel. We saw that the day of the Lord was also a day where God would oftentimes rescue Israel and he would punish Israel's enemies for their sins against them. He did this to Egypt, and he did this to Edom. We saw that the day of the Lord also, in another sense, referred to when Christ would come and visit the second temple. All right, He would come and bring salvation 
and judgment to Israel. And then we looked again and we saw that there is a final day when Christ will come again. He will restore creation. He will save the church. He will judge the world. And so we gave a helpful definition to help understand this day. And we'll put it up on the screen right now. And we saw that the day of the Lord is a recurring event that has its final fulfillment in the return of Jesus Christ as he exalts himself, restores creation, finalizes our salvation, and judges unbelievers. Does that help you understand this? It's an event rather than just a a one-time day, okay? The day of the Lord is a recurring event that has its final fulfillment in the return of Jesus Christ as he exalts himself by restoring creation, finalizing our salvation, and judging unbelievers. And so we look at all these scriptures to help understand this definition and derive our, our definition from these scriptures, okay? Again, to give us a proper understanding of this doctrine. Again, too many people only view it as an end-time thing where God judges the wicked, but we see that it's not just a one-time End time event. It is a multiple fulfillment. It is a joyful day for some because salvation will come. It is a time of rest, a time of blessing. That is what this day brings. But for others, it will be a horrific day. So this day involves not just restoration and salvation, but destruction and judgment, both. And that's why we gave that definition, okay? And then we also took just a little bit of time to show you how the day of the Lord, and this was really exciting for me, I don't know if it was for you, but it was for me, to see how the day of the Lord was foreshadowed or typified in the Sabbath day and even in the promised land. And it even has its seed origins in the book of Genesis this day. And, and we walked you a little bit through Hebrews to help you see how the author of Hebrews connects the Sabbath day, the Sabbath land, and the Sabbath eternity, or that day. Okay? If you didn't hear last week's sermon, well, I know that there's no internet going on right now in the high desert. Um, At least there wasn't a little while ago, but you can go back and listen to that a little while later. But hopefully this helped correct a lopsided understanding of what this day is about. Now, with this previous sermon of the day of the Lord in the past, we now have a better grasp of how that day is. We have a better understanding of it. And now we can look at Joel a little bit better. And so we should be asking questions. When Joel talks about this day, is it referring to past, present, or future events to come, or even the final one? We should be kind of trying to tear this apart and piece it together. Now, the central point of today's passage, it's not that just Judah should be concerned, but the nations or unbelievers should be terrified of the coming day of the Lord. Not just Judah. In verses 1 through 11 of chapter 2, the passage that we read this morning, we have a literary structure called a chiasm. For those that don't know, a chiasm is a form of writing. It's a form of structure where the first statement is parallel to the last statement. And then the second statement is parallel to the second to the last statement. And the third statement is parallel to the third from the last statement until you arrive at a central point. And the the author is trying to ascend into a high point and descend in order to draw attention to this focal point this morning. And so I want you to look at the diagram on the screen. If it's not already up there, it should be at this point. Um, You will see that A matches double A. 
And B matches double B, C matches double C, D, and double D, and then to the high point of E. And so in this passage, you ascend to a central focal point, and then you descend in a reverse pattern. That's what we have here today. And so uh, while I was studying this, this text, I had a little bit of free time on my hands this week at work, and I was looking at the passage. I saw what I thought were indicators of what could be a chiasm. And so I just took the scripture by itself and I printed it out twice on a, on a piece of paper and I took it to two guys at my work and both of them are members here at church. I took it to John who's running slides and I took it to Caden who likes to interrupt our worship service. <laughs> all right. He'll never do that again. I promise. Right. Right. All right. All right. Right on. All right. So I'm just playing. I love him like a, a son. He's getting a whooping when he gets home. All right. So anyway, I gave him both this. Pat, I gave him both a blank paper with the scripture on it, and I said, "Hey guys, uh, tell me if you see a chiasm in there." I said, "Do you know what that is?" And they're like, "Duh." And I was like, "Sorry, excuse me, Mr. Theologian's over here, right?" So they knew what a chiastic structure was, and they came back and identified the same chiastic structure that I did. And so I knew it wasn't my imagination, and so we didn't have any scholars or fancy uh, theological books to inform us. It was just this beautiful little Easter egg, this beautiful little treasure, this beautiful little gem that we found tucked away in this uh, 11 verses. And so the high point, the central point, the focal point is that we must fear the day of the Lord. And I'll show you how this is laid out in chiastic form because, again, we're dealing with poetry here. The first point we see, number one, which parallels with verse 11. We see a day of declaration, a day of declaration. In regards to this chiastic structure, we see that verse 11, uh, 1 and verse 11 coincide. This is a day of declaration, a day of announcement. We see two different announcements, two different sorts regarding this day of the Lord. One is in verse 1 and the other is in verse 11. In verse 1, we see that a ram's horn is to be sounded. A trumpet blast is to announce that danger is coming to who? If you read the text, it's to Judah, okay? This horn was to be blown in Zion, which is another name for Jerusalem, all right? That's the capital city of Judah. And this horn signals that war is coming, and invasion is coming. It serves to alert the citizens that the town is in danger, something is coming. In Springfield, Missouri, where I went to college, I don't advise living in Springfield, Missouri, but that's where I went to college. We had tornado warnings and sirens that would alert the town that danger was coming. When we heard these, we knew that it was time to get below ground in a basement. It is an ominous sound. I I thought another country was invading us the first time I heard it. I'm like, how did they get that far? We're in the middle of the country. What is that? Tornado's coming. Unless you want to get stabbed with a piece of straw flying through the air, you better get down below. It was scary. You remember those, honey? David, I know you were there. Those are the worst noises ever, man. You're just expecting bombs to get dropped on you, right? You get, it is an ominous sound. That is what this horn sounding in Jerusalem is meant to do. Strike fear into you. Strike terror into you. That is a ram's horn. It alerts of what is to come. And so just remember last week, Joel talked about the day of the Lord, and then he referred to the past. Now when Joel talks about the day of the Lord, he uses cues and hints that lets us know, and now he's talking about the future. He's not referring to past stuff, but what is to come. Danger is coming. Hasn't happened yet. So we see this language. 
shift. The first mention of the day of the Lord looks backwards. The second day of the mention of the day of the Lord now looks forward. But they're connected. It is coming and it is near because it has come and is upon them. And we're actually moving into an escalation of the day of the Lord, an intensifying of it, if you will. Okay? So one backward look, one forward look. It's not here in fullness. Worse is yet to come. So all the inhabitants of the land should tremble, referring to uh, the Israelites, right, those who are in Judah. All of them should tremble. And this phrase, inhabitants of the land, it is used regularly in Scripture, but in Joel as well. Inhabitants of the land, not owners of the land, inhabitants of the land. It's a constant reminder to them that this land was a gift from God to them. This was God's land, and he gave it to them. Just like creation is God's, it all belongs to him. Not just the cattle on a thousand hills, but God owns everything. There's nothing in this universe that doesn't belong to God. And so they are there because God allowed them to be there. And this land, again, it was supposed to be a blessed land, a land of rest, reminding them that God saved them from wicked Egypt. But now the land is cursed. It is not blessed. Just like Egypt was cursed and God brought judgment upon them. And so this cursing of the land should remind them, guys, this feels a little eerie. This feels like what God did to Egypt. Yes, you're in the same boat as Egypt right now. You are, you are rebelling against God and you are under judgment. They're acting like pagan nations. And so verse 1 shows a horn being blown to signal Judah to prepare for war upon them and destruction. God is coming to war against them. In verse 11, we see the parallel. It's not a horn that is heard, but it's what? It's God's voice. And it's a signal, not to Judah, but to God's army. It's a signal that it's time for this army to rise up and wage war on Israel. So do you see the parallel? Two noises being made. One horn, one God's voice. Two people being alerted. One's Judah, one's God's army. One's going to get attacked, one is to go and attack. That's the parallel that's going on here. Okay? So we see that. And they are to carry out the command of the Lord, this powerful army. Its power comes from God, which is why no one can endure this day. This event is terrible and dreadful. And so it's not an event to look forward to when you are at war with God. Please hear that. It is not something to look forward to. Meeting God face to face should not be a happy moment if God is coming to wage war against you because of your rebellion towards him. You will not say, hey, God, that's just the way it is. It's how it was. You you will not be able to stand like that before God like some punk in a courtroom defying the judge. You won't be able to. So hopefully you see this parallel, okay, between the horn and God's voice Warning Judah, the voice of God arousing this enemy. It is a terrible day, and it is connected to the day of the Lord, which is mentioned in both of these verses. Both of these verses mention the day of the Lord. Those are the bookends, if you will, letter A and double A of this ascending staircase. Okay. As we mentioned last week, this day is not a one-time event. Not a one-time, end-time event. It happens on multiple occasions, with the final event coming when Christ comes again to make war against a world of unbelievers. And Revelation tells us this. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we are told that when Christ comes, he will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God. Do you see that day of the Lord? 
and how this day of the Lord points forward to that. And that's why we sang songs like, How Great Thou Art, When Christ Shall Come, with shouts of acclamation. It is, it is referring to this day of the Lord, is it not? Can you see that, right? How these songs, you're like, I didn't know how great thou art was partly about the day of the Lord. It's there. When every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Ancient of days, okay? All these songs that we talked, sang this morning were about this day. Now there's this major announcement that judgment is here for unbelievers, but that announcement will also be good news for those who are saved and in Christ. Victory is coming And God is our victorious warrior. As we ascend the chiastic structure, we see that this day that is declared, right? It's a day of declaration. But it's also a day of darkness. A day of darkness. Verse 2 parallels to verse 10. Look at the similarity. In verse 2, we see darkness and gloom, a cloud and total darkness. What do we see in verse 10? We see that the sun and the moon grow dark and stars cease their shining. That this is not a sunny day. This is poetic language and imagery meant to arouse a sense of dread. It's, it's like the nothing in the ever, never ending story. Do you guys, have you ever seen that movie? No? Am I the only one? The never ending story? Yes, I got a thumbs up. That's a wonderful movie. A wonderful, uh, fantasy type movie, all right? I, I love it. Anyway, we watched it last week. That's why it's so fresh in my mind. But there's this ominous nothing coming in, eating up everything. There's some play on what's going on there. You have to watch it to figure it out, all right? But here's the thing this is a day of darkness, a day of dread. Do you see the parallel in verse 2 and 10, just like you do 1 and 11, right? Recall with me. The creation account in Genesis. Now, I want, you to, I want you to pay attention to when I preach. I never use the word story, the creation story. You know why? Because it sounds like it's not real. I always say account, all right? The telling of or the account. I want just something I want you to pay attention to. When you are talking about Old Testament stories, make sure you use, I think you should use the word account because it's history. All right, we're not telling fables and stories. But recall with me the account of creation in Genesis 1. On day 3, we see God creating vegetation and fruit. Okay, You can go back and revisit that. On day 4, God created the sun, moon, and stars. We remember that. After that, God created man and woman on, in his image on day 6. Then we see, after God created the planet... Vegetation, sun, moon, and stars, and everything else. I'm I'm highlighting those two things for a reason. Vegetation and the celestial lights. After God created man and woman, he blessed them. He blessed them. You, You may not have made that connection, but it's important that you get it. He blessed them. They were the pinnacle of the creation of God. God created this world for them to inhabit it. They're inhabitants of the land, just like Israel is of the promised land. God blessed them in the land with the land. That, that, it wasn't just a pronounced blessing. It was tangible blessing. I got food. I got a beautiful garden. I got a beautiful wife. I got a, a handsome husband. And we got all this creation. And we got God. We are blessed. God has blessed us. Okay? That was God's intent. What an awesome God. Everything in creation was meant to bless them with the knowledge of God because creation reveals all the knowledge of God and declares his glory. Creation reveals God, and that was part of God's blessing to them. So just remember that creation account. When we now hear the language of Joel, of darkness and gloom 
clouds, total darkness, the sky shaking, the sun and the moon, and the stars ceasing to shine. What is being removed? If, if God gave creation to bless Adam and Eve and humanity, what do you think this language is conveying to us when God darkens all these things and removes vegetation and food from them? It's showing us through creative language that God's curse is upon them. Are you tracking with me? I, I hope you are. I hope that makes sense and I didn't confuse it. If the creating of these things was for the benefit and blessing of mankind, then when we see the removal of these things in poetic language, we should think decreation, not creation. Destruction, not creation. Curses, not blessing. This is decreation language, the opposite of Genesis language. Again, Adam, Adam was a son of God, placed in a garden. Israel is a new son of God, and he's placed in Israel is in this promised land, which was meant to be like a new Eden for Israel. And just like God curses the land and the garden after Adam and Eve sinned, so God curses the promised land when Israel turns away from God. We have just a a repeat of a story just happening over and over and over again. Okay, It's meant to tell us our folly and show us our need for a Savior. Now, as a reminder, Jesus... Not just Adam was a son of God, not just Israel, but we have the perfect son of God, Jesus, who leads us into a new garden, a new creation, the eternal land of rest, okay, where we are blessed forevermore. Indeed, this is what God was doing by destroying their harvest and vegetation, showing curses upon them. He's removing blessing, bringing on his curses, decreating. Now, as you read the text, you see that God's powerful army is mentioned, this great and strong people that appear. Some people think that it refers to a further infestation of locusts, okay? And you can go back and track the language from chapter 1 to see that. Some people believe that this refers to an actual army like the Assyrians or the Babylonians. For now, let's just remember that the end result is the same regardless of which view you take, okay? God's destruction is coming, This invasion is coming, it says, like dawn spreading over the mountains. Like dawn spreading over the mountains. Just get that imagery of when the sun is rising in the morning and light is spreading. Now, it's interesting because Joel just used a darkness metaphor, right? Darkness and the stars ceasing to shine and the sun and the moon and all that being blacked out, okay? Um, He's now using a light metaphor to indicate God's judgment, all right? A light metaphor. He just goes from darkness to light. Now, Joel's not schizophrenic, okay? He's not trying to say that these things are, uh, darkness and light are the same thing. But what he's saying is that he's using different images to convey the same thing. So what happens when dawn arises? The sun slowly spreads out. You see its first rays. And then what was dark becomes light. And as the sun rises more, it just begins to spread and spread, Right? That's what's going on. And that's how God, uh, through Joel, is describing this army, that it's coming. Right? He's, he's using the light metaphor to say it's coming. And you're going to be soon engulfed in the entire thing. Destruction is coming up across your whole land. That's what he's using, the light metaphor. Okay? So we might put it like this. The army is coming. And as the infantry continues to arrive, it will get worse and worse. In fact, all of Judah's past history and future history, all right, 
the scripture says the size of this army will be unmatched, which is how God refers to the locusts in chapter 1, which is why some people take that view. But some people, again, think it refers to uh, an invading actual army. All right, But this is why the earth and the skies shake, because of this judgment of God coming upon them. And if you're paying attention, if you're paying attention, the language of, of locusts, the language of locusts is still governing this description of the day of the Lord. The language of locusts and how they interact is still governing this passage. Okay? Locusts, what do they do? When they arrive, they're innumerable. Okay? They are darkening the sky with their billions in number. Okay? And when they arrive, all right, they just seem like a small blip on the radar from afar, like the sun just creeping over the mountain. But as they approach, it gets darker and darker, more and more devastation. And so Joel is using the language of locusts to show curses, decreation, and judgment that is coming from God. And it could be another wave of locusts, because later talks about, uh, Joel talks about God would restore the years that the swarmer and the, and the locusts took away from them. So it could be multiple waves, but it could be an Assyrian army or a Babylonian army. <clears throat> it's hard to tell. I can tell you that opinions are split all over, and every, every commentary that I read, they're like, it can't be that. It's not the locusts, it's the army. And then the other guy's like, no, that guy's wrong. It's not the army, it's the locusts. He's wrong. And they're just back and forth, back and forth. I'm like, you both are dumb. I have no idea who's right, but I have, tell you, I have waffled back and forth, and um, I don't know. But what I do know is that the end result is the same. Total destruction. It is a day of darkness. You don't want to be there. Judah, okay? But it doesn't change the effect. The announced day is a dark day, a cursed day for those who rebel against God. Similar language is used in the book of Revelation to signal the gloom and doom of God's judgment, the darkening of the celestial bodies. In fact, when Jesus comes again on the final day, on the day of the Lord, that final one, on the day of judgment, His judgment will be so thorough that sun and moon and stars will actually be done away with. Scripture says we will have no need for these things on that day when he comes. Why? Because in a marvelous display of God's grace, in a marvelous display of God's blessing, in the new creation, in the new heaven on earth, instead of giving us stars, moon, and sun to be our light to bless us, God says, I will be your light. And so rather than having celestial bodies to shine light upon us, God's very presence will light us up. That's a greater blessing than the blessing that we have now. And the blessing that we have with the celestial bodies shining on us is just meant to point forward to the day when God is our light. Okay, God himself is the greater, bigger, and fulfillment of what these temporary things do for us. He is our blessing. As we ascend the chiasm a little further, Step three, we see that it is not just a day of darkness. It is not just a declared day. Thirdly, we see it as a day of total devastation. Look how verse three and verse nine parallel. Notice that this army has a scorched earth policy. Before them and behind them, fire is raging. The army is consuming everything around them. That's the gist of this phrase. But but then we see that Joel uses language from Genesis 1. 1 through 2, okay? Genesis 1 and 2, I should say. He mentions, now listen to this. He mentions that the land that is being cursed is like the Garden of Eden. 
And so it's not my imagination to say that the promised land was to be like a garden of Eden. Joel knew that, all right? And so part of it has not been destroyed yet. There is more devastation coming. Again, this signals to us that creation is meant to be a blessing to us, but sin ruins it via God's judgment. The promised land was to be a new Eden for Israel, a new garden of blessing, a new land. But we see that as the army invades the land, that it's consuming all that is good. It's leaving a desert wasteland behind them. The land of blessing is now becoming a land of desolation, total devastation. God decreating and removing their blessing, just like God cursed the ground and removed blessing from Adam and Eve in the garden. So God is removing blessing from this land. The point of verse 3 is that there is no escaping the full judgment of God. There is no escaping the full judgment of God. And this parallels with verse 9 in the chiastic structure. A different, <clears throat> a different analogy <clears throat> is used to describe the destruction that the army brings to Judah in verse 9. They are said to storm the city. They run the walls. They climb into houses Again, this is locust-like behavior, and it's used to indicate that that which is coming cannot be stopped. That's what it's telling us, okay? And this is why verse 3 parallels verse, uh, verse 9. The blessings of God are being stripped. If you've ever had anything stolen from your home, it's not a fun feeling, okay? This army that is coming is likened to thieves. What does fire do? Destroys everything. When the thief breaks in, what are they trying to get? Everything that matters to you that is of value. And so verse 3 and verse 9 are using two different images. Destruction of fire, the thievery. In both cases, what matters and that you need most is gone. And you can't stop it. That, that's the point of these verses. I and mean, if you ever had your home broken in, you feel vulnerable, you feel taken advantage of, you can't get back what was taken from you, that's the imagery that fire and thievery are meant to portray. So never forget that the day of the Lord was, was real, but it points to a final day of the Lord. So let me just say that if you're not a believer in Christ, if you're not one that has called upon Christ to save you, if you don't trust him to save you from this day, it will be a day in which all good things, listen, please listen, that day will be a day in which all good things that God has ever allowed you to touch and to taste and to see and to hear and to smell and to enjoy, all of those will be stripped from you. God's blessings were meant to draw you near to him and to cause you to flee to him as one who loves you. And if you have turned your back on him, and spited him, and loved these things more than him, and not served him, and served these things rather than the one who gave them to you, they will be stripped away. They will not last forever. A day is coming when you will see God's fury face to face, and you will be stripped of all the goodness that he has sent your way. And you will not be able to escape the fullness of that day. That is what Joel chapter 2, verse 3, and verse 9 are trying to communicate to Judah and that's what it communicates to us on this final day. The prophet's warning of Judah to Judah should serve as a warning to us, his warnings. So do not let your heart be callous 
If you are not a believer, do not harden your heart towards God. Heed his word. He's given it to humanity to help us know what is coming, to show us that Christ can save us from that day of destruction, and that that day of destruction can be a final day of blessing instead. Okay? We will, we will you know, this boggles my mind. We will watch rescue movies all day where people are rescued from danger by a hero. But when presented with the ultimate rescuer story, and we are seen as those in danger, we, are, we spit on that message. We spit on it and despise it when we become the ones who need rescue and help. And God is the one who can rescue us. We will watch all kinds of movies that portray superheroes that rescue people. This story, sinners hate it. It just shows what the problem is. The problem is with God. The problem is with they don't want to see themselves as God tells them to see themselves. We are too hateful of God to see how good he is. And that is why God must change our heart. We can be so self-deceived, blinded by Satan, that we can't see the good news for what it is. Right? Our nature is corrupt and we are torpid. We are not alert. We are unaware that danger is coming until God takes off the blinders and shows us what is coming. This is a day of gloom that will usher in an eternity of anguish for you if you are not a Christian. So flee to Christ. Run to him. It is total devastation. So this declared day, this dark day, this devastating day, it is also a day of discord. Let's ascend a final, uh, uh, one more step before the final step, a day of discord. It's important that we see this day not just as a bad event, not just as a natural disaster, as if destruction like this is happening to Judah because, well, now is just a bad time. It must be seen as a day of discord with God, a day of discord. This is a day that God comes to battle and bring judgment upon Judah. This is a day of discord. It's not just, it's not just the locust invasion or the drought. This is God stepping up and standing toe-to-toe with Judah and demolishing them where they are right now. These are, this, whether it's an actual army and the locusts in the first part or locusts and locusts, it's God doing this. This is the day of discord with God, a fight between two parties. Notice that the language of verses 4 and 5 matches the languages, uh, language of 7 and 8 in our parallel, uh, in our chiasm this morning. Verses 4 and 5 parallel verses 7 and 8. In verses 4 and 5, we're presented with images of war and weapons and war and warriors. This army looks like horses. This army gallops like horses. And this use of like is, is one reason why some people think that this is not an actual army, but a further invasion of locusts because uh, it's using the word like. Like, why would you say that an army is like an army unless it was an army? Okay, so this if the army is actually locusts, then it would make sense to say that the locusts are like horses and they gallop like horses, that they bound on mountaintops. They actually make noises like that of chariots or there's noise in their buzzing and crackling noises like fire burning up things. I've been told that that's what locusts sound like, at least through the reading of historical materials. Okay, Um, they are like a mighty army sent off to war. Now, those that hold to a literal army view. I'm presenting just a little bit of information to show you why some, some people take this view, okay? Those who hold to a literal army view would say that, well, if you read Deuteronomy 28, you see that God's curses go from locusts then to army invasion, 
all right, as the curses escalate. And so there's argument on that side, okay? And so there's more to this debate, but again, this is imagery, this is poetry. It's meant to arouse your fear, arouse, your, uh, arouse you from slumber, to get you to see what God is doing in order to take action. And so the imagery is secondary to the truth that is being presented behind it, okay? The imagery does matter, but ultimately the truth is total devastation is coming from God. You better wake up, you better repent. And if you can get that, then you can then have these finer debates a little bit later and work it out yourself, all right? So the truth revealed is judgment is coming. Feel sorrow. Judah, feel shame. Be filled with dread. Then turn from your sin and be blessed. You don't have to be cursed, Judah. Whether, again, it's more locusts or a real army, God can save you and restore you. He can restore the land, which is what God is getting at in a coming portion of Scripture. Freshness, newness of life, Judah, can be yours in God's love. But you got to stop hating God. Stop warring against Him. If you pick a fight with God, you will be destroyed. Repent. As you look at verses 7 and 8, you see the mirror of this language from verses 4 through 5. The army attacks as warriors. They scale walls like warriors do. They have their marching orders and they each stand on their path of their assignment given to them. They march in rank and file and they're able to evade weapons that are fashioned against God. They're unstoppable, this army is. Again, this army is God's army, and he can use locusts. He can use evil nations like the Assyrians or the Babylonians if he chooses to bring judgment upon Judah. But lest you think God is okay with wicked nations, just know that wicked nations will be judged as well. And we'll get to that part in Joel soon enough. This brings us then, as we see this day of discord, that it is actually war between God and sinful humanity, for their rebellion against him, we get to the final point or the high point of our chiasm. This poetic structure is meant to get us to focus on this one point that we're hitting right now. This announced day, this devastating day, this dark day, this day of discord is a day from God. Therefore, it is a day to dread. A day to dread. Verse 6 is what Joel wants us to focus on. The nations writhe in horror before this army of God. All faces turn pale. They glow. Writhe means to twist when you're in pain and in agony, to be in anguish. This is how the nations view the army of God. Again, whether locust or natural powerful nation. They're terrified and horrified at this people, at this devastating army. Everything that comes face to face with this army is scared to death. Everyone. They they look like they saw a ghost when they see that it is coming near them. The fear is such that it looks like life has left their body. All faces turn pale. What do you think Judah's response should be knowing that this is the focal point of Joel's message here in these verses. What should they do with this expanded knowledge of the day of the Lord and this invading army? They should be afraid. They should be horrified and terrified. 
they should wake up. They should repent. They should turn to God and seek salvation because they can't escape this dark day. And hopefully you can see how the text is ascending. The day is coming. It is dark. It is total devastation because it is war from God. You better be terrified. Do you see how that escalates? And then it descends in order to drive home that point. If you are not scared of this day and you are warring against God, then you don't understand how bad this day is. You are foolish. The prophet warns that we might find salvation, that we might find rescue. And again, these days, they point towards the final day. They're repeated days in history to let us know that judgment is coming. The first day, it happened when God told Adam and Eve, in the day that you eat, you will surely die. And they were judged that day. And then God in his kindness showed how the Sabbath, the Sabbath rest could point to a day when we would have rest from our struggles and our labors in this world, pointing towards that final day of blessing, that day of the Lord. And then it just expands and we see, oh my gosh, it happened in Noah's day. God brought judgment upon the world. And then Peter tells us, huh, Jesus is coming again. How do, you remember that day when God judged the world by a flood? Well, the day of the Lord, it's going to be by fire, which lets us know that the flood was the day of the Lord. And we see it in Egypt when God delivered them. And then we see it in Israel over and over again. And then we see God judging uh, Judah. And then we see God judging the Syrians and the Babylonians. And it just, these days are pointing to the final one. Wake up, wake up, world. That's the whole point of what God is trying to do. Psalm 9 says, rise up, Lord. Do not let mere humans prevail. Let the nations be judged in your presence. Put terror in them. Put terror in them, Lord. Let the nations know that they are only humans. That's what Psalm 9 tells us. Put terror in them. There's a day coming when the world will wish they had heeded the warning of God in Joel, in Revelation, in the Gospels, in Genesis. All throughout Scripture, this warning is shown to us. If you are a Christian, I thank God, and I praise God, and I know you do too, that God has alerted you to this day and shown you the reality of it so that you could flee to Christ, who was judged for you on the cross. And that is how we can be spared this day. That day is a day of judgment. So you must know that the day Christ died on the cross and God unleashed his fury on Jesus, he was suffering the wrath of the day of the Lord on that day. And so in some measure it can be said that Jesus suffered the day of the Lord, that sinners should suffer. But only those who trust in Christ. Only those who trust in Christ. You wonder why the stars grew dark and the sun ceased its shining on the the moment Jesus died? There was the day of the Lord happening so that we would not have to experience it, its judgment, but so that we could experience its blessing. And church, for that reason, we should be fully devoted to Christ. You know, we're not one of those churches that does altar calls and has people come up here and pray with a counselor or anything. What we do is we admonish you and tell you right where you are, you get right with God. If, if, if you are not a Christian, you need to believe that Jesus died so that you would not have to die. That he rose so that you could have life everlasting. That blessing that the day of the Lord will bring. Because if not, 
you will be terrified and horrified on that day. And if you are a Christian who has believed that message, can, can I just, uh, I don't know what, what the right word is, can I just, uh, can I invite you or remind you of what kind of commitment you should have to this God who has saved you and remove that horror from you? If you've been slacking your walk with God, it's time to re-up that commitment and say, hey, I, I'm not going to be slack in my love for the Lord. I have, no, I have nothing to fear because of him. He's removed that terror from me. I will be devoted to my God. Because that's what God is calling Judah to do, to live in faithfulness to him. And that's why they're getting judged, because they're not. So renew your love for God. Cast off the sin that besets you and slows down your race for God. There's a cloud of witnesses watching. The Lord is watching. Run with faithfulness. Run with endurance, that race that is set before you. Be like Jesus. When Jesus went to the cross, he just set his face and said, I'm going to go do what God wants me to do. And you follow your Lord. You follow your Lord. You follow your Savior in that same type of commitment. Lord, I'm yours. You bought me with a price. I serve you. As for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Just renew your commitment to God. Renew your devotion. Stop being slack. But sinner, if you are not in Christ, come to him today. I don't know when that day will come. I don't don't know which part of the sky the world will be the first to see him. But when he descends, it's too late. It is too late when he begins to descend upon this world. And for those of us that know he's coming, we can rejoice. The trumpet has been sounded. Our salvation is getting finalized in that moment. So let us worship him now. Let us come to him now with gratitude. And as we take communion in just a second, um, may we do so with a heart of worship with this day in mind. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we exalt you as the one who is coming to judge and to save. You are sending your son to rule this world. We will see you face to face. We will dwell with you forever on that day even as that day has already begun. Lord, we've already entered our rest in Christ, but we long for its fullness. But Lord, we pray for those who are apart from Christ, who reject him as Savior, who war against him with their rebellion and sin. Lord, may they be put on notice today that there is a day to be terrified of. That like the nations of the world, Lord, who feared God's judgment, all people, all places, should fear the wrath of God. And that should drive us, God, to Jesus for salvation. So I pray that that would be the case today for those who don't know Christ. And for those of us who are saved, may we be reminded of what we have been saved from. May we continue to be devoted to you and worship you with all that we have and all that we are. We pray this in Jesus' name.